Hello and welcome to AAPT Comics Podcast, Episode 4, where we're going to talk about the latest news, the best books of last week, and what we're looking forward to the future. And we've got some pretty awesome rotating segments. So, to start off, my name's David Brooke. Connor Christensen in the left corner. Hey, there he is. <laughs> Contributor to AIPT Comics and also Star Wars Pod co- co-host. Co- co-host, co-pilot, navigator. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Gunner, I don't know. Uh, I'm, I'm, but yeah, I talk about Star Wars too. And then our other co-host who has two R's in his name. What was that name again? That's Forrest, F-O-R-R-E-S-T. <laughs> I am what I am and what I am is walking here. Um, so anywho, every show we start off with the news and the number one thing that all comic fans are talking about this week is Diamond's 2018 bestseller list that was released. Some surprises in this list, some not so surprises. For instance, Marvel uh, had the highest share of sales. Um, and I think they've been in the top for all of last year, if I'm not mistaken. DC is creeping up behind them at 30%. Marvel's at 38%. Um, and then there's also top books and uh, top graphic novels, which nobody's surprised. Saga is at the top of the list for Image Comics uh, as far as graphic novels. That actually did surprise me. <laughs> but it's always at the top of the list, isn't it? I don't know. I just It wasn't necessarily that it was, it was Saga. It's the fact that there's like... Image Comics dominated the trade paperback market. Um, mm-hmm. Like, they have five of the top books. Yeah, Marvel only has one Infinity Gauntlet at the very top. $25 for that. Mm. But Image Image has pretty much everything else aside from, I think, three DC books in there. Which is funny. And, mo- and most of it is Saga. About yeah. the, uh, the Infinity Gauntlet being number one on graphic novels, is that kind of refutes the... A lot of people say... That, oh, movies don't influence comic book sales. Mm-hmm. Mm. But Infinity Gauntlet is a story that came out almost 30 years ago and is the number one selling graphic novel of the year. Yeah. Right after Infinity Wars came out. So may- maybe, maybe just a little, little bit, a little bit the movies influenced it. The trick might be to have a two-parter for every story arc movie, right? Because then everyone's going to go, hey, we have to read the comics so we can spoil it for ourselves and know how this ends. I can know what other people don't know, and I can go into the theater, and I can say things like, that's not how it happened. That's right. not real. Right. Everyone loves that. It is cool, though, that Amazing Spider-Man, as a Spider-Man fan, it's cool to see that Amazing Spider-Man had four of the top-selling books, of individual comics, at least. Yeah, single yeah, issues. That's pretty yeah. awesome. And that, and that second single issue, Amazing Spider-Man number 800, 999. Yep. Yeah. That's that's a lot of change. It, so it is. Good, though. Yeah. It was so good. That was Dan uh, Slott's yeah. semi-last issue. I think it was second his... to last, second to last issue, right? Yeah, um, I actually reviewed that for the site, and I liked it a lot. I mean, it was epic in scope. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I just think it's funny too. Like everyone talks about how divisive a writer Dan Slott is, but then you look at this list and Amazing Spider-Man number eight hundred, Dan Slott. Fantastic Four number one, Dan Slott. Yep. Amazing Spider-Man number seven ninety-eight, Dan Slott. Amazing Spider-Man number seven ninety-nine. Dan Slot. So, like, you can call him divisive all you want. The man sells, you know? Yeah. You know, it's funny that you say that. It seems as if uh, maybe the writers of these books is, is a big reason why the books are selling so well. Because Action Comics 1000, which featured uh, Brian Michael Bendis' first DC work, published work, was number one on the single issue list. Another expensive book, too, at seven ninety nine. Yeah, a big chunk of change for them as well. Yep. I almost wonder if the edge there is the $2. How, what do you mean? The entry point, I don't think people flinch at mu- as much at a seven ninety nine book as they do at a $10 individual issue. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a cool jumping on point for Action Comics. It's Brian Michael Bendis getting into DC and all those other factors. But I think people are equally as interested in the end of a 10-year-long Spider-Man run. See, and I, I picked up Action Comics 1000. I've never read it. It's just like being displayed in my room just because it, I don't know, 1000 is just such a cool milestone to hit. Yeah, uh, it really is. Even though it's not that much more, you know, it's only 200 more issues than 800. And Amazing Spider-Man is going to hit 1000 at some point. It's not like that's a series that's going to get canceled. So I think that that kind of gave it the edge too, is that it like 1000 is such a monumental uh, milestone to reach. That people like me who have no interest in Superman, like, I don't hate Superman, it's just not a character I've ever been interested in. Even I went out and got Action Comics 1000 just because it's like, well, that's such a massive milestone, I feel like I need it. Mm-hmm. That book had a lot of creator, big name creators like Scott Snyder writing for that as well. It was basically an anthology of stories 
if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. You know, another thing that was kind of surprising was like the Batman Who Laughs was was on the top 10 list. And that only came out, uh, what, a month or two ago? Like that was at the end of the year. Yeah, that was December. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, another surprise for me anyway was Venom number one. But I... Yeah. Was it the movie hype that got... Or maybe it's Donny Cates. I don't know. I think, I think, I think it was both. the Donny Cates hype. I don't think it had much to do with the movie. I disagree there. Um, I think it's probably both. I think it's a good jumping on point. It's a restarting of the run. But they did a bunch of marketing around this one that was like, this is Venom. There's going to be a web of Venom tie-in. There's going to be all these other little stories. Donny Cates is spearheading it. It's probably going to have its own event in the future. This is our mainline Venom book in a way that it's never been done before. And I think that that's a big factor of it. But I don't think you can rule out the movie either if we're talking about Infinity Gauntlet being the number one Mm. graphic novel yeah true yeah and it's a number one so everyone thinks they can jump on with that and that movie did fantastically well venom blew up how much did it make stupid amount of money (laughs) 880 million i think something like that one of the bigger surprises on the top 10 list is batman number 50 which was the third uh, most sold comic because it got spoiled so hard this is the one i was the most surprised by yep everyone knows or if you don't uh batman and catwoman are getting married uh, so everyone was, wanted to see what would happen if they would actually tie the knot. Spoilers, they, I'm not going to say, but... Uh... <laughs> Spoilers that got released before the book even came out. <laughs> Thanks, Washington Post. Was it Washington Post? Or is it New York Times? <sighs> New York Times, New York Times. Yeah. New York Times, you spoiled it. Well, actually, when I was at Boston Comic Con, Tom King was talking about it, and he said he had information that they were going to do this and spoil it, but he was on vacation and decided that DC could handle it. And he actually said on the mic, like, DC did not handle it, and I wish I did say something. Oh, yeah. wow. Yeah. It was still a really, really good issue. Like, I'm so far behind on Batman. I'm still on Batman number, like, 22. I'm, like, starting mm-hmm. the button crossover now. But when, when Batman number 50 came out, I skipped ahead and just read it. You know, it's a huge event. And it was really, really awesome. Like, they tied in all the artists that they got to do guest artwork for. They tied it all in in a way that made it feel not like, uh, I don't know, unnecessary. Like, it was essentially like all these postcards from the past. And it was really cool. I thought it was an awesome hmm, issue. That's cool, yeah. I I haven't read it. And again, I haven't read it because it was spoiled. Right. So I, I was honestly surprised to see it as the number three single issue. Um, but also, when you look at that cover, when you look at the marketing around it, when you look at the storyline, when you look at Tom King, CIA agent or not attached to it. <laughs> Definitely CIA I think... agent. <laughs> I don't know why we're still <laughs> questioning this. <laughs> He's definitely a um, CIA agent. Yeah, I think you just, people want it in their collection, regardless of the fact that they may already know what happens. And then uh, just a quick uh, recap of the top publishers. It goes Marvel, DC, Image, then IDW, then Dark Horse, then Boom, then Dynamite, then Viz Media, which is manga, then Titan Comics, then Oni, and then a mix of others. Um, Anything catch you guys by surprise with this list? Yeah, that IDW beat out Dark Horse and Boom. Yeah. And that kind of refutes what I was saying last week or two weeks ago, where it's like they do too much licensed stuff, and I don't think... People buy the licensed material. I was wrong <laughs> because they somehow own 3.83% of the uh, the market share, which is mind-blowing to me. Yeah. You know, as the media and content manager, I see all the titles coming out every week. And I have to say, IDW puts out a lot of single issues every week, more than Dark Horse, more than Boom. Uh, maybe that's a factor because they're just they're pumping out so many more books. They're putting out like 15, 20 books a week, uh, whereas Dark Horse is more like four or five max. IDW also puts out a lot of kid-friendly books. Mm -hmm. So if parents are going into the comic book store and looking for something that their younger kids can get, and it it is stuff that is licensed, but it is kid-friendly. And so maybe that's a good cross-section for them. Right. Maybe maybe they've done the market research. Well, they've done 3.38% of the market (laughs) shares worth of market research and found that it works for them. So they've cut that little bit out. In our second bit of news, we just want to talk a little bit about Kieran Gillian uh, leaving uh, Marvel's Star Wars uh, as the head writer. No. (laughs) Connor and I actually talked a little bit about this on the last Star Wars podcast. We have yet to find out who's taking over for Gillian. Connor, you had a theory. Yeah, I I would love to see Charles Sewell do it. Yep. He's teased that he's not done writing Star Wars stories even after Darth Vader ended. Um, he knows the Star Wars universe incredibly well. He's written more. It's not just Vader that he's written. He wrote Poe Dameron. Uh, he wrote that Anakin and Obi Wan miniseries from 2015. 
uh, he just ended his run on Daredevil, so his time is a little bit freed up, even though <laughs> he is writing a bunch of Wolverine stuff at the moment. Um, but still, I think Charles Sewell would be he'd be a pretty awesome fit to take it over, and I would love to see what he does with the original trilogy characters. Um, see, I go in another direction. I want new blood. It's been Jason Aaron and Gillen pretty much doing the main books for so long. Like, I want a new take. See, but I don't because don't don't fix what ain't broken. Like I think it, I think the the series has been really good, and I've enjoyed it issue over issue. Even like the worst Star Wars issue, I've still enjoyed. Yeah, and especially like once you read them as like an overarching narrative, if you can read, if you if you can hold on to each issue and read it like three, four, five at a time, it's so good, and it's such an awesome series that I'm ups- I'm sad because I'm like, oh, but it's been so good. Like. I, and I understand, like, he's not being pushed out. Like, he is saying, like, I'm done. I don't, I'm done telling the stories I want to tell, which I respect. But it's like, no, man, you've done such a good job. Like. <laughs> and I think that's a similar arc that a lot of big writers for Marvel and other publishers have followed. I mean, he just launched Die, which is a creator-owned book. Um, they're wrapping up. Yeah, it's doing incredibly well. It's second printing for both first issues. And then he they're wrapping up Wicked and Divine. I'm sure he's going to launch another thing with Jamie McClevey out of that. Matt Fraction and Rick Remender both did this, where they did they were kind That's of true. architects of the Marvel Universe for a while, or a specific section of the Marvel Universe. And then they were like, bye, creator-owned. And one thing that gets overlooked is Kieran Gillen is the main writer on Star Wars now, and he... He took over at issue number 51, but he did kind of build up everything outside of the main title. He did the Darth Vader uh, first volume, which took place alongside the current volume of the main Star Wars title. And then he launched Dr. Aphra into her own series. So he did really play a massive hand like, OK, here's what the Star Wars comics are going to be like. So he totally he, you're, you're right. He totally did like take What did you say? Archetype? Architect. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm really bummed to see him go. He he definitely built up the Star Wars comic universe into something that's been super rad. I just hope whoever takes it on next uh, does a good job. Yeah, one of the, th- the biggest things I think he's contributed is new characters, new ideas, not just so taking many. the movie characters and kind of doing a spin on it. Yeah, he's been really fleshing out the universe in an exciting way. And that's, I think, what a lot of comic readers are expecting from the comics, because they can take more chances than the movies. Yeah, and he's like, the coolest thing about what's, what's going on right now in the Star Wars comics is like, he's taking, he's he's tying back uh, Luke, Han, and Leia's adventure into events that happened like, that have been building up since, like, the middle of his Darth Vader run, which was, like, two and a half years ago with uh, Leia's new vendetta against the people of Shoturin. Uh So, I mean, it's just, it's been awesome to watch what he's built up, and I'm I'm really sad to see him go. I hope whoever takes it over does just as good as a job. You know, one really disappointing thing is that because Rob Liefeld is doing this new Major X series, we're not going to get to see his take on Darth Vader and uh, <laughs> Luke Sky, I could I could just see him killing it on Star Wars. But unfortunately, uh, it those news, are fighting words. <laughs> news broke out just yesterday that he is creating a brand new mutant character from a mutant Shangri La. He lives in a mutant Shangri La. <laughs> say it, heaven. Say the name. And his name, you won't believe it. It's so original. It's at the top of the charts. His name is Major X. And I believe Connor yesterday told me at least he has guns in his hands and not hands for guns. He's got handguns, not gun hands. The character looks like he's wearing a bucket on his head. He has swords. He has guns. He looks like a Deadpool type of character. Imagine, fellow listeners, imagine if you had um, Judge Dredd, Cyclops right before he died, and Deadpool had a baby. That's oh what my god, Connor! Like. That's exactly what I was going to say. He's it's so yes. derivative and it's so terrible yes. and it's everything that was bad about '90s comics. I have so much to say about this. Rob Liefeld needs to just go the fuck away. Wait, 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 wait. <laughs> Can I just say really before quick? Before we get to that, let's just be a little more open-minded. I mean, it, yes, it does look very derivative. We don't, we haven't re- read a single issue yet. It could be good. We don't know. I've, I've read enough of his quotes about <laughs> what it is to know it's going to be hot trash. Oh, just to clarify, he's he's writing and drawing it. So, oh, thank God. Oh, okay. So it's it's all him. Yes, for better or worse. One thing that I don't want to discredit in the character design there is if you look at the uh, groinal region. Yes, he's very clearly put a like table 
plate, a big old dinner plate in front of his groin to protect it instead of like a jock strap or anything like that. <laughs> Rob and I, I think that's big it. on groin health. <laughs> the groin does I think that's high. a really inspired move. And then he's got like the Iron Man glowing circle in his chest. Yes. Like, yes. Yeah, there's a lot of character designs that I'm, uh, character elements that I'm absolutely positive are not going to be explained. Although, oh guys, God. let's all admit it is a step up in that it doesn't have any pouches. And well, and the yep. feet and the feet look good. The feet look normal. <laughs> That's true. So let's, but there are pouches in this thing. You know, there are going to be pouches at some point. Mostly because I will give credit to credit where credits due. Rob Liefeld takes the the pouches jokes as pretty well. Like he did a variant yeah. cover for some series where he drew Pouch Man. Yes. It was all uh, yeah, I thought so, that was really funny. Yeah, Even was, though I, I really was, don't like him, yeah. he does have a sense of humor, and I, I do enjoy that about him. But like, what the the name of the the mutant sh- Shangri La that this this new character is from is called Existence. <laughs> Are you fucking kidding me? Like this this book just sounds like a '90s fever dream. Like yeah yeah, it I, sounds yeah. so. stupid. Stupid. There should be Just, people drinking Mountain Dew and on their BMX bikes on the half pipe, I think. There's the going to be pagers in this book for sure. The <laughs> That's the watermark. Yeah. Fax it to the CIA and see what they think. The, 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 the thing that's interesting for me here is that Rob Liefeld, I guess, has reached the status where Marvel's just going to let him do whatever he wants, regardless of continuity, which is kind of what they've started doing with like, or they have done historically with Claremont and a couple of others, where I know uh, CB is interested in bringing John Byrne in to work on some stuff too, after he was doing sketches. This book takes place in the 90s. Mm. The, the character Major X, that's the other reason why it sounds, so in a way, the reason why it sounds and looks like straight out of the 90s is because it's a book that is actually set in the 90s. It's set, Major X crosses over into the Marvel Universe right before Cable takes over the New Mutants team or book or whatever. So it is set in, like, so it does make sense, like, oh, they all look like they're straight out of the 90s because it is 1991 in the context of the story. But that doesn't make it any better. I can see from C.B. Sobolski's perspective, I mean, nostalgia sells. And the kids of the 90s are now at that age where they've got money to spend and burn, you know? So to bring Rob Liefeld back to do a book in the 90s, it's going to scratch an itch. It may not be good. (laughs) It may be amazing. But uh, I think I, I think we're not holding our breath on that one. No, I'm, I'll read it. I'll, I'll hate read it for sure. <laughs> and who knows? Maybe I'll like it. There's been stuff that I've sat down to hate read. Like I'm gonna love to hate this, and I go, ah, shit, I kind of like this. Right, right. So in our next segment, um, we're gonna be talking about the top three books from last week, the books that came out that tickled our fancy the most. And to start up this segment, we always start with the comicbookroundup.com's highest rated books that have at least four uh, reviews. Uh, so that their higher numbers are legit. And the number three highest rated book with a 9.3 was The Wicked and Divine, number 41, which is a series that is beloved by many. Any of you guys reading that series right now? I like how you said beloved as a question. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it is. It's massively popular. I've seen cosplayers for it forever. Mm -hmm. Since before issue one came out, I think. Forrest, what is your third favorite book of last week? My third favorite book of last week is Venom number 10, written by Donny Cates with art by Ryan Stegman. I cannot imagine a week where Venom comes out and it's not going to be on my top three, just so you guys know. But I can encapsulate exactly how I feel about Venom and the way that it's going with a tweet that I saw from Donny Cates earlier this week. I think actually yesterday. Someone said, hey, Venom is really good, but when are we going to get to the punching and kicking? Because there's really not a lot of like superhero-ness. There's not a lot of violence. There's not a lot of anything aside from how bad can we make Eddie Brock's life? How sad can we make it in this issue as well as the previous issue, which is kind of this little mini arc called The Abyss about Eddie's family. And he said, emotional violence is violence too. And I think that that is a great insight into how Donnie and Ryan are approaching this book. And I think it's a great insight into how Eddie Brock and the Venom relationship can be used as a catalyst for exploring that. I don't want to really spoil any of this. There's a lot of twists and turns. There's multiple cliffhangers pretty much in this one issue. But it is really impacting. It is really sad. It is really heavy. And to know that Donnie plans on folding back in the actual physical violence at some point is really exciting to me. Yeah, I saw a tweet recently. He said something about how he's been what what happens in issue number 10. He's been hinting at since issue number two. Yeah. 
I went back and looked, and that's true. I almost put this on my list too. It was Venom number ten was stellar this week. It's been a stellar yeah. series. There was a, and Ryan's Ryan Stegman's art is incredible. I know. I love the way he yeah. does his like the way each page is laid out. It's like very crisp and clean, and he uses actual panels, which I love. Uh, yeah, his art is it's it's a dream team book. That's for sure. When you yeah. when he shows his pencils on Twitter, it's like mind boggling. I don't even know how he approaches the page. And I like that he still he said before that he still inks some of the covers in particular mm-hmm. because he wants to retain that relationship to the art. And I think that's really great. They're they're both so obviously dedicated to the book. Right. And uh, actually, AIPT asked Donnie Cates a week or two ago how long he has this series plotted out. And I believe he said 200 issues. Yeah. Goddamn. So my third pick was Black Widow number one by the Soska sisters and art by Flaviano. This is a book that was actually not rated very well uh, via Come of a Ground Up. A lot of re- reviewers weren't hugely uh, ecstatic about it. I... Liked it quite a bit, and I went in completely blind. I had I did not read any of the uh, synopsis or any of the preview pages or anything like that, and I was pleasantly surprised by how jam-packed it was with content. It opens with a really cool action sequence using C- Captain America uh, right before the the ball drops in the uh, Times Square. It it really hammers home not only her like physical prowess but her ability to plan and strategize and actually run circles around Cap even. Uh, if need be. And then the second half, it starts to build out where the story will go from here. And it's all set in Madripoor, which uh, if you're a Wolverine fan, know, you know that it's a it's a city of pirates and uh, backstabbers. So it should does, be fun. Does Patch make an appearance? She dresses as him. Oh, oh that's awesome. And the art is, is it suits this, the story too. It's a, it's a bit cartoony. Um, it's not super hyper-realistic, but it, it gives the book a nice... Uh, a nice atmospheric feel. And there's actually some sexual undertones too that are are, are a little surprising. Um, like for instance, she gets on top of a robot and she says, as long as I'm on top, I'll fight this thing or whatever. Ha! And then just to hammer home that she did mean what she, we think she meant, Cap is like, ugh. <laughs> He's like grossed out by her. Anyway, that's my third pick. I really liked it. Um, Connor, what's your third pick? All right. Uh, I went with Justice League Dark number seven. Written by James Tinian IV and drawn by Alvaro Martinez Bueno. Um, so Justice League Dark is the realm of the Justice League that deals with magical bullshit. Um, demons and witches and wizards and <clears throat> Harry Potter stuffs. Uh, obviously not licensed Harry Potter stuff, but you all get the gist. Anyway, um, this issue was awesome. It is kind of... It's kind of a standalone issue. It it isn't necessarily tied directly to the issue before it or the issue that's going to come out next, but it does string together a collection of standalone stories together totally seamlessly. Um, it's the uh, the Man Bat, not Batman. The Man Bat is telling stories about these new villains that are crossing over into our universe, and it's just all these like one-off, anecdotal, basically like campfire horror stories that he's telling about these horrible things that have been happening around the world. Uh, And like I said, they're all strung together very, very well. And they all have like their own individual title pages. It's really, really cool. And it's really well done. Each has its own style of horror that they blend together very, very well. And the, there's one, one story in particular that has like a big focus on body horror. And it's like, it's genuinely unsettling, and it's a very, very creepy story. Um, regardless, though, this 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 issue, it's what it's supposed to do is it's supposed to raise the stakes for the whole series. It's supposed to make you get a good look at what they're facing, what the villains are, and realize why it's it's so bad. Um, and it, it it does that without without failure. Um, you very much realize by the end of the book, like holy shit, like they're they're fighting the creepiest villains in the the um, DC universe at the moment. Uh, so it does a really good job of just raising the stakes for the whole book. It's super memorable, very unsettling, very creepy. Uh, big fan of this book. Love Just Sleek Dark as a whole. I think it's been awesome. So, so yeah, number 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 three for me, Just Sleek Dark, number seven. I feel like magic has always been underutilized in the DC universe, and this this book really feels like it's revitalizing it, making it feel important. I do agree that it's a great home for it. Yeah. And I love all these characters. It's a great cast. Yeah, this this book has made me care about characters that I do not care about normally. Like Detective Chimp 
is a huge part of this book. <laughs> he's so great. Yeah. And yeah. He's, oh, and he's awesome. Like the last the last little story arc they did was like only three issues, but it was about Detective Chimp, and he was so good. It's like what I suddenly like one of my favorite DC characters is a fucking monkey detective. If you haven't dabbled in this yet, I recommend going to aptcomics.com and reading my interview with James Tinian. He goes in a little bit about how this is the some of the scariest stuff he's written as well. It's, it's definitely a horror book at times. And uh, I don't know, it's kind of exciting that, that DC's kind of sprouted these new Justice League uh, titles. It's a Justice League renaissance at the moment, at least in the comics. Maybe a renaissance. Renaissance. The second... Highest rated book, according to comicbookroundup.com, is Gideon Falls number 10, a series I've never heard about. Um... Yeah, we definitely didn't, <laughs> didn't uh, berate Dave about this book last week. Yeah, I'm going to talk about it more, foreshadowing, uh, yeah. later in the episode. It's, it's good stuff. My God. Forrest, what's your uh, second pick? My second pick is Middle West number three, written by Scotty Young and art by Jorge Corona. Both of you guys were just saying a minute ago that you haven't read this, right? Correct. Nope. Okay. So this is a fantastic little book. Um, it's about a kid who discovers he's got magical powers. He may have come across them by accident with a um, friendly little familiar of a talking fox. But it's set in the middle west of America. But in a very um, kind of almost tongue-in-cheek magical fantasy way. Uh, it's got a near future kind of feel. There's wizards that use like gas lamp staves and everyone has these big tubs of pink, I'm assuming fuel on their motorhomes. Um, they've got tractor trailers that are carrying around weird vegetables. And um, it kind of reminds me a little bit of how like, did you guys read Chew from Rob Gilderoy or anything like that? The world was like slightly askew, but also really similar to our own. Yeah, yeah, I dabbled um, with that. Yeah, I didn't read the whole it, thing. it reminds me quite a bit of that, but this book is a little bit more serious and heartfelt. At the center of it is a really great story about the distance that the main character, Abel, has with his father. And it explores in a similar way to Venom physical and emotional violence. Um, he's kind of seeking out a new mentor and someone that understands his powers as well as trying to get as far away from his father but his father's kind of trying to reconcile what he did to his kid and go find him and make sure that he's okay after this kind of cataclysmic tornado in the first issue Um, it's really really great the world building is incredible scotty young leans away from all of the humor and stuff that he's doing in deadpool and delivers a lot of heartfelt genuine believable moments and in a world that I just really find fascinating, Jorge Corona's art is impeccably detailed and fantastical feeling. Yeah. Moving on. My second pick is also Connor's second pick. We're going in on this Dutch. Uh, it's The Batman Who Laughs, number two, by Scott Snyder and Jacques. Well, first of all, we earlier we were talking about some of the best-selling books of the year in 2018. And number one of Batman Who Laughs was on that list. So unsurprisingly, number two is on my list and Connor's list because it's so damn good. Incredible. Scott Snyder is sort of unveiling the bigger picture very quickly, I would say. And there's a lot going on in this issue. Um, I was a little surprised it was going to be a compressed story. But so far, there's been lots of twists and turns in a single issue, making that uh, price tag on the book well worth uh, exploring and picking it up. Um, the art is, of course, amazing. Jacques is one of the best. He's one of the best cover artists, I think, working today in comics. Uh, but when he does his interiors, it's a whole other ballgame because it, you know, a cover is supposed to slap you in the face and make you want to buy a book. But to tell a story is a whole other thing. And he does an exceptional job here. Um, you know, honestly, the, one of the reasons why this is on my list at all is because I can't believe DC is letting Scott Snyder do this story. Um you know, 15 years ago, I don't think they would have let anyone do this story, even if your name was Alan Moore or Frank Miller. Um, it's it's exciting. It's uh, it's it's kind of pushing the boundaries of what a Batman story can be. And we're seeing like the ultimate Batman villain, the Batman who laughs, really put some uh, the Batman that's in the story through the ringer. Yeah. And, and to echo it, what Dave said, because like you said, this is also my number two pick. Uh, this does it carries the same feeling that Metal did. Um, and what I mean by that is that, that Bruce Wayne is in an unwinnable situation, that he is facing his greatest villain, and he 
every it, it, when when Bruce Wayne goes up against the Joker, there's always this feeling that like the Joker's a step ahead of him, the Joker's a step ahead of him, but he always eventually edges him out, and he gets two steps ahead of the Joker, and he ends up beating the Joker. But with this one, he's literally fighting himself. So this is one of those Batman stories that you feel like he's so fucked. <laughs> like how I'm I'm obviously you know he's gonna eventually get out of it, but part of the suspense is like how are they gonna how are they going to write him out of this? Like, how is he going to get around this? Because he just seems like he's in such a shitty situation. Yeah. Um, like Dave said too, it's, it's masterful storytelling. It, it weaves novel like prose into comic book scripting and comic book pacing. So well, there is a lot jam packed into both of these first two issues. There's a lot to, to look at and there's a lot to analyze, but it, it doesn't feel overstuffed. Like right. you don't, you don't feel overworked after you read it. Like there are some, there's some prose heavy uh, books that once you get done reading it, like a single issue, you're like, God, I feel like I just read like seven chapters of a novel. Um, and you don't get that feeling with this one here, even though it has a lot of prose in it. But it's just it's woven together so well. And then also, I just love the little it's like one panel. But there's this one panel that gives you a bunch of background info on the grim on the grim knight who mm. is for batman i mean punisher. in layman's term he's the punisher <laughs> dressed as batman like yeah. that's the best way to explain it but the way that because when the grim knight got announced i was like oh god it, it's it, yeah it's it's the batman punisher version um but the way it's explained is awesome how the batman laugh who laughs says um i won't spoil it but it's just really cool the way they explain like it made it less tacky to me like oh okay actually that sounds like a very cool way for the grim knight to come about so yeah i mean it's just a fantastic issue um it's it's an awesome miniseries and it's 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 moving at a very quick pace so definitely recommend it really really dig it it's not often where you can say a hero is literally fighting their foil who is literally them in a different form um it's pretty exciting and that it's done well right right i I mean i've been reviewing scott snyder's books for almost seven eight years now and he's only getting better with time Moving on, the number one book from comicbookrunner.com, according to comicbookrunner.com, is Thor number eight by Jason Aaron and Michael Del Mundo. And I've dabbled in this series. I actually haven't been reading the last two. It's visually, Mundo's amazing. He's one of the best. Yeah, absolutely. Very, very good. What what makes him so good, I think, is he's not like anyone else. There are plenty of artists out there who are very similar to each other. They're all really good, but they're so similar to each other. You just are like, oh, there's another superhero book. But not with Mundo. His work is just, pff, I don't know. It's like dreamlike. It's it's trippy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I want to know, is Force number one pick trippy? <laughs> um, I wouldn't say so at all, but I would say it's written by Jason Aaron as well. <laughs> um, Conan number two, written by Jason Aaron with art by Mahmoud Asrar. Um, I guess I said this previously about Venom, but it's starting to look like there won't be a week where Conan comes out that it's not on my list as well. Um, Connor, give it a try. This is a really cool standalone issue, which is something that Dave called out in his review of the book available over at AIPTcomics.com that is really important to the Conan, I don't know what you would call this, kind of the delivery mechanism of Conan stories is that sometimes there are these standalone little issues. They tie into where Conan is at as a character, where he's at in his head state, but they also speak to the world as a, in a larger, in a macro scale. And this one does that very well. It sets the stakes for a relationship between the tribe that lives on the other side of the river from Conan. There's giant snakes. There's um, a little bit of politicking. There's Conan's revisiting how he feels about these people. And then at the very end, there's a really good stinger tie back to the first issue. Rather than just being like, we need to deliver on that cliffhanger right now. They don't do that. Um, and I thought that that was really well done. There's these giant like turquoise snakes bleeding bright purple blood that Mahmoud uh, does really well. And um, I just thought it was really cool, really metal, really well written. I liked it a lot. Yeah, and you know, he deals. it deals a little bit with uh, racism too. I mean, Conan is a racist in this story. I mean, this is the hero and he's freaking racist, but... He learns from that. And that's that's a teachable moment for anyone reading the book, too, who may be a racist. <laughs> if you're a racist, don't read Conan number two, because you might come out changing. <laughs> 
I do have a word about that real quick. I've seen some comic skates folks attaching themselves to this book, or I saw that after the first issue. This issue, the second issue, is such a strong rebuke of what what those people were trying to lift up. You're so right. Uh, it's, I didn't think of that. They're going to feel really burnt by it, and I am so happy for all, that. <laughs> all 72 of them are going to be so upset. <laughs> You know what I'm not upset about is my number one pick, which was Fantastic Four number six. Let me tell you, Dan Slott, Aaron Cooter, they're at the top of their game with this book right now. It's action-packed. The Fantastic Four are finally back. There's no more wedding going on. There's no more, hey, where's our new hideout or whatever, headquarters. No, they are all in the Fantastic Car. They are flying towards Doctor Doom and Galactus, and they're going to punch some skulls. Well, that's not really what they do, but they do <laughs> use great strategy and work together to, to defeat evil. And uh, this issue, no, Cooter is just doing amazing work. It's in your face. It's very Jack Kirby-esque. There's a really big uh, art and uh, it's some really awesome splash pages. And there's a lot of cosmic things going on, too. I don't want to spoil it, but Dr. Doom has a little secret weapon that is quite compelling. It's it's like a hero for Latveria, which is uh, kind of an interesting take, considering that Doctor Doom is quite evil. Connor, what's your number one pick? Uh, my number one, my number one pick that was foreshadowed a little bit earlier and foreshadowed last week is Gideon Falls number ten, written by Jeff Lemire and John by Andrea Sorrentino. Uh, it was the uh, number two book on ComicBookRoundup.com. Uh, technically tied for number one since all three books that we have uh, from Comic Book Roundup this week are number or at nine point three. Uh, Gideon Falls number ten is a huge payoff issue. It is absolutely gorgeous. the The coolest thing about it is it has this incredible page design throughout. It's kind of unlike any comic you've ever read in the way that it places its panels and its images on page together. The design of each page is meant to supplement the story and supplement the relatively complex narrative that's going on and and it just it has these shots where the panels are kind of weaving in and out with one another kind of like dna strands and it and it helps it helps make the the narrative make sense because the narrative is all about like these two realities are starting to blend together so it's just this incredible design that really really makes the kind of tricky narrative subject matter easier to digest and it's just also awesome to look at um Everything is also ever so slowly coming together with this series, and it's so satisfying. It's yeah. To say it's been a slow burn would be an understatement. It has been, but it's been a slow burn that has been so intriguing and so interesting to read that when you get these little moments like you get in this book where things are starting to come together and things are starting to make sense, it's incredibly satisfying, and it's done. It's done so well that you don't even realize, like, wow, we're we're ten issues in, and this is just now starting to make a little bit of sense. That's kind of how good this has been. <laughs> yeah, um, and and you, the tension that they maintain across every single yes. individual issue is I mean, astounding. There's yeah. there's almost you, like you can almost hear like a looming noise in like a looming white noise in your head because it just builds everything up so well. It's I mean it's yeah. just. It's mind-blowing. And then the ending of this issue is just, it had me giddy with excitement. Um, yeah. It just it, it just builds into what's coming so much. And this series, like I said last week, this series is a series that gets a shit ton of hype. People always talk about it. It's, if you go into a, to a, um, a comic book shop, it's, it, all the issues are going to fly off the shelf. But it's because it's that good. Uh, you you got to read it. You got to read it, people. Gideon Falls yeah. number 10. And, and I would just add on to that. If you like David Lynch... You have to, have to, have to read it. Oh, my God. I'm a huge David Lynch fan. Yeah. I would get on it, Dave. Yeah. It reminds me a lot of the third season of uh, Twin Peaks. Very lynching. So it's weird and bizarre, and there's uh, possibly dwarves talking backwards? (laughs) Actually, uh, I wouldn't rule all of that out. (laughs) No, but there are pages that you have to read that are upside down. That is is a fact. That's going to be tricky on a uh, digital reader. Oh, no. You literally have to, like physically turn the book around at certain points which is it, it yeah. ties into the the design of the book but the it design also, yeah it totally it's not it's not funky design for the sake of funky design it's funky design to make the book easier to understand and that is just awesome it empowers the narrative interesting yes there we go very so well it's like it. a physical relationship with the book even yeah yeah absolutely it's it reminds me of house of leaves uh-huh yeah <laughs> 
In our next segment, our rotating segment, which you've never heard before, our first for this podcast, it's called Square Up, where we take a DC hero and a Marvel hero, or two different heroes, it doesn't have to be DC and Marvel, but this week it will be DC and Marvel, and we have them fight, but not in any boring way where it's like, oh, Superman's stronger than Hulk. It's going to be uh, a little bit Thor more Thor would actually beat Superman, because <laughs> Superman wouldn't be able to lift his hammer. Uh, guys, fuck out of here Goku. What? <laughs> Goku. What's that? <laughs> is that a language? It's, yeah, I don't, I don't. Is that is that some sort of is is that a Overwatch character? I I don't I don't follow. So to put a twist on this little thing we're doing, um, I'm gonna use a random randomator, randomator, randomizer to I like it. No, randomator. Like randomator. Yeah. randomator. To yeah. pick a DC character, villain or hero, and a Marvel character, villain or hero, and then. Um, Forrest has a deck of cards called Super Fight? Yeah, so I have the Super Fight Challenge deck. Not a sponsor, but hey, if you want to pitch in. And I will draw a challenge. They include things like Civil War reenactment, worst date, best at escaping a temple after stealing a sacred idol, that kind of stuff. So not the normal fights, um, and we'll see what happens. So this is completely random. We have not prepared for this. Our DC character is Scarecrow, and our Marvel character is... Quicksilver. Oh, oh boy. God. <laughs> okay. And they, we are going to debate who would be the best at herding cats. Oh man, this herding? is too easy. Yep. Wait, yeah. hold on. Hold on. I'm gonna go with Scarecrow because he can gas the cats. <laughs> oh, okay. Jesus and, Christ. And they will all pass out. He just puts them in a box. He's done. Maybe this won't be easy because I was like, this is obviously Quicksilver. Get it? You're wrong. Because he'll just. He'll just run and he'll just pick them up, sprint over to where he's going. He'll be done. He doesn't need to herd them. He can just take them. And what if they scratch him and he drops one? Now it's splatted into the wall because he's moving so fast. <laughs> I don't know. I, I feel like canonically we could find out if Scarecrow's a dog or a cat person. I feel like he's he's got to be a dog person. You think he's probably said something about that one way or the other in the books? Yeah, I think I think at some point Scarecrow has probably mentioned like he's probably made some sort of Catwoman pun. That is like anti-cat. Could uh, be. But I can't prove that. Mm, I can't prove that. I'm yeah. That's somebody, good. I bet there is. Somebody do the research. Um, I think I think it would certainly be Quicksilver. He's no. fast. Mm-hmm. Even if we're talking about nope. if we're talking about classic herding, like the act of herding. Have you played Red Dead Redemption 2? Where yes. you have to herd some of the animals? You know, yes. so you have to stay behind them and you gotta, right. you know, direct them. Like imagine mm-hmm. how quickly Quicksilver could move back and forth to make them do that. You're failing to realize that Scarecrow is wearing the correct clothing to herd cats. He can't get scratched. No. Okay? No. No. Quicksilver is wearing paper-thin spandex. (laughs) Scarecrow is designed to scare away birds. That's it. Okay? (laughs) You forget how fast cats are. Dave, you should know this. You have two cats. They're adorable. I see them on your Twitter. Thank you. I love your cats. I appreciate it. You should know how fast they are. Scarecrow does not have the reflexes. This drug addict, drug riddled supervillain who obviously has some sort of opioid problem does not have the reflexes to control a herd of cats. Forrest, what's your take? I think my take is that Scarecrow just looks too scary to be approachable. Mm -hmm. Cats don't trust that. Quicksilver's Quicksilver's got no mask on. He's approachable. He's. <laughs> I think we, we can get someone from the science team in here to debate <laughs> about whether or not a cat would explode going at a certain speed against a wall. Yeah. But um, or going to certain speed at all. Some say cats are liquid though. So. Because if they sits, they fits. Exactly. I think Quicksilver just edges him out in approachability, which is so so important to cats. Mm-hmm. True. My cats hiss at me sometimes when I'm wearing my boots and I'm a little bit taller. You're right. Scarecrow would probably, his his self-esteem would go down if he had to herd these cats. And I, I think it's already abysmally low. <laughs> <laughs> he does wear a sack on his head. <laughs> when you do that many drugs that often, normally you don't feel too great about yourself. That's true. Yeah. I say that from experience. All right. So the winner this week is Quicksilver. I'm wrong. Yeah. Moving on. Let's talk about next week, guys. Do you have any top picks for next week? Any top books you're looking forward to? I know oh, I do. Oh, do I? Take it away, Connor. Folks, friends, boys, guys, girls, countrymen, people, let me tell you about a little book that comes out next week. One that I've ranted and raved about. One that I hold near and dear to my heart. One that some people would say I enjoy more than Chris Hassan enjoys Cyclops. Shout out Cyclops. We kicking off this week at APTComics.com. On Monday, the 21st. Friends, folks, fellow listeners, 
The Wildstorm number 19 comes out this week, and I could not be more excited. The Wildstorm is one of DC's most underrated books. I don't know why more people aren't reading about this. I don't know why more people aren't hot in the streets about this book. It is fucking so good. It weaves so many narratives together so well. It's this complex tale of interstellar travel and corporate espionage and science fiction war and a, a looming apocalypse and it all gets tied together so well it's so fucking good john davis hunt on the art is incredible the guy draws fight scenes better than anybody else it's like i've, I've said it so many times but i'll say it again it's like reading a john wick storyboard come to life it's fucking so good i got my wild storm reference in this week i didn't even have to to, to make it up on the fly. Wildstorm number 19, pick it up this week. Forrest, what is your pick for uh, next week, which is the 23rd? January 23rd? Yeah, January 23rd. Mm-hmm. Uh, Guardians of the Galaxy number one, written by Donnie Cates with woo, art woo. by Jeff Shaw. I am so fucking excited. <laughs> Connor, I could probably almost meet your excitement about the Wildstorm for this shit. I love Marvel's cosmic stuff. Um, I'm actually not huge on Nova, but pretty much any of the other stuff is so awesome. It's so uninhibited. They get to do whatever they want. They're out in space. There's like laser swords and Cosmic Ghost Rider is out there now. And um, there's just a bunch of really awesome stuff going on. Donnie has this really cool, kinetic, fun energy um, that also sometimes just turns to these really great, threatening, personal, heartfelt moments. Um, again, that that thin line between physical and emotional violence. And I know that they're going to find a way to make Thanos the main villain of this story again. And I'm really excited about how he does that after seeing um, how he did Thanos wins. I'm a little bit nervous about Cosmic Ghost Rider, the Deadpoolification. I think we've talked about that before. But Donnie Cates is... Uh, Cosmic Ghost Rider's daddy, and I think he'll treat his boy very well. Um, the team here is interesting. There's a couple that I don't know very much about. That's all good. Beta Ray Bill's there. Cosmic Ghost Rider's there. Silver Surfer's there. All characters I care a whole lot about, and I'm just so, 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 so sincerely excited. If you go to AIPTComics.com, you can read uh, a couple, the first couple pages in the preview, and spoiler alert, it actually kind of gives you what Thanos is up to or how he's involved, I should say. Yeah, I want to. I want to see. He explained a little bit on Twitter. Um, Donny Cates did about the shot of of Thanos that you can see in the book. Uh, I'm excited to see if slash how he brings Thanos back from the dead. Uh, yes, I can't. I can't wait to see how how that goes down. Um, but yeah, this is. Uh, it's it's a good time to get back into the Guardians of the Galaxy. I thought Infinity Wars was a little little underwhelming. Um, which which is kind of a bummer because I really like Jerry Dugan's stuff, but Infinity Wars just didn't do it for me. So uh, I'm excited for a new a new start for the Guardians of the Galaxy, and definitely looking forward to picking this up as well. Not as much as the Wildstorm though. Marvel uh, sent me a physical copy yesterday on Friday, and I've read it already. Um, oh. Oh, <laughs> I apologize, Forrest. I get the I, books early. Oh, uh, I um, that's, that's cool. I just want to point that's out cool. uh, AIPT will have a review of it on Tuesday, uh, day early. So my pick for uh, next week is Naomi Number 1 by Brian Michael Bendis and Jamal Campbell. Um, this is a new series that is a, based on a human character interacting with the superhero world. So it's, it's like that human element that Bendis has done so well at Marvel, and he's bringing that to DC, which is why I'm so excited for it. Um, she is an orphan who's trying to discover herself, uh, and she thinks that there's a, a Superman attack with Mongol, they were fighting each other. She thinks that it has some kind of connection to her identity. So it's kind of a cool, you know, human level take on the superhero realm of DC. And I feel like it could really flesh out the universe and make it feel more real. And that's why I'm excited for that. Moving on to our next segment. Um, this is where we talk about our favorite cover of next week, uh, which coincides with our AIPTcomics.com uh, column, judging by the cover, which goes up every Monday where we have two staff members, one of them, Eric Klein, our editor of manga and editor of this column, uh, and they give their takes. This week, we're going to be picking, and I'm going to, actually, I'm so excited. I'm going to be one of the the people judging covers and judging by the cover this week. So my pick is actually, right now, the one I'm going to tell you about is the one that's actually in the article on Monday, and it's uh, Guardians of the Galaxy number one, but it's the variant 
by uh, Gerald Perel. I'm actually not that familiar with Gerald Perel, but this cover is really cool. It's like a movie poster. It's got the characters stacked up on each other, and um, you'll see it on amputeecomics.com if you go to this article uh, for the podcast. Cosmic Ghost Rider's in there, uh, Groot, he's got all these spikes, and uh, it's just the use of color, and there's some special effects as well. It's, it's quite nice, quite a nice cover. Connor, what's your cover of uh, next week? All right, so I went with a little throwback, fellas. Um, I went with Mars Attacks number four, uh, the cover H by Robert Hack. Mars Attacks, for anyone who hasn't seen the movie, uh, is it's it's a comedy, but it's out there. Some people don't find it funny. I don't even know if it's out there. It's it's a stupid comedy, but it's it, it knows it's stupid, which is why it's so funny. Um, Dynamite Entertainment has been doing a comic series based on the film, not adapting the film, but just telling more stories um, around the film. I don't know if people were clamoring for it. Either way, though, it's a pretty funny little book. This cover, though, that I chose uh, captures the feeling of the book or the feeling of the movie, but doesn't capture the comedy. But I find that really interesting because this cover is actually like kind of creepy. It's the the Martians are interrogating a guy and it looks incredibly painful and gritty and it doesn't retain any of the comedy from the movie or the books. Uh, so I found this cover super interesting. Um, yeah, and it's that's that's really all I got to say about it is it's an interesting uh a parallel to a otherwise very funny book and property. Yeah, anytime I see one of those covers, Dynamite does those very well. Um, I, I feel so warm and at home. They're nice little nostalgic pieces. They're all rendered really well. They do a bunch of different covers. Um, they're all they're all great. Every every time I see those Mars Attacks ones on this uh, rack at my local shop, I'm like, ah, that's awesome. I don't pick them up. And maybe I should, but... I've actually um, bought a few issues of Mars Attacks just because I'm like, oh, I like that cover. It makes me giggle. Yeah, they're very artistic, too. They're striking mm-hmm. in that, like, grindhouse sort of B-film way. Very much so, mm-hmm. yes. Forrest, what's your pick? My pick is The Man Without Fear, number four. It's a variant cover by Declan Chalvet. And um, it's it's kind of scary as well, actually. Um, it's an all-black cover with these red lines crisscrossing. And then um, it's got a grim visage of, like, a yellow daredevil suit, but with, like, a skull face kind of hanging on those red lines. This was, like, the main villain of the first issue of The Man Without Fear, um, written by Jed Mackay. Declan's work in doing this kind of physical horror, it feels empty and gross and it feels like you're so used to seeing a body in that suit and to see it just strung up like that um, but with this still kind of lifelike energy inside of it feels wrong it feels off and when you see it in that way um, it feels threatening almost and to see it uh, and know that there's a connection to what's happening to um, the characters right now or specifically to uh, Matt is is really well done and um, it makes me a little scared for him, and that's exactly what I want out of the journey that he's taking in getting back into Daredevil. Declan Shalvey is amazing. I mean, everything he does is so striking, and he's been doing some good work on Return of Wolverine, too, in the interiors. He sure has. So, in our next segment, Weekly Soapbox, which is how we end all our shows, because we want to end our shows on a rant, because we want to be passionate, and we want you to be passionate about what we're passionate about. And you know what? Connor is passionate this week. Connor, what are you passionate about? Well, aside from Rob Liefeld somehow getting another fucking book and 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 the Wildstorm coming out next week and me being all excited about that, I want to talk to you guys about um, Marvel Comics. I want, to, I want to talk to you all about that. And what I really want to talk about is a problem they have more so than any other publisher, and that is the fact that they refuse to let a an artist stay on a book for more than what feels like six issues. Now, obviously, there's some exceptions to that rule. You have some all-time runs where people stay on books for a long time. But there are far too many times where you have an artist kicks off a book, and then a different artist steps in four to five issues later with a completely different fucking style and starts doing the book, and it completely throws off my enjoyment for the book. The biggest example, and the most recent example I can think of, is Amazing Spider-Man. Amazing Spider-Man uh, launched with Nick Spencer and Ryan Otley on art. Then, I think it was around issue five or six, all of a sudden, Humberto Ramos stepped in. And now, I don't dislike his art or anything. It's just the fact that it is so very different from um, 
Ryan Otley's. And the problem with that is, is it creates this disconnect within the story. Is it doesn't feel like one continuing story. It's it, it's like if you were filming an episode of television, and then halfway through the episode, you got a new costume designer, all new actors and actresses, a new director, a new director, a new cinematographer. You got an entire new crew to do an episode, and expect the watcher, the viewer, to not notice and not be like, "Wait a minute, this feels weird now." I cannot fucking stand it just pick if you're gonna if you're gonna you know have a revolving door of artists that's fine but at least make it artists that have similar styles don't go from somebody like ryan otley to chris bacalo which is happening in amazing spider-man right now it's completely different styles that completely fucks up the flow of a storyline and yes i know the stories come out you know a month apart but still if you want to sit down and read them all at once it's incredibly jarring to go from one story that has ryan otley style to another story that is chris Spockalo style, which are vastly different. And that's just one recent example. This is a problem that has been going on forever. You go back to Cable the Last Hope, which is one of the most famous cable stories. You have Ariel Olivetti's art, um, um, juxtaposed with oh, I'm blanking on the guy's name, but he does a lot of very famous covers. Um but anyway, it's a guy who did Uncanny X-Force. It's it's just incredibly different styles of art. And then you expect people to not be be you know confused by that or to enjoy it it just it makes me so mad i'm 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 losing my mind over it it's fucking stupid <laughs> sounds like it just just pick yeah. an artist and let them stay on it like i can't stand these revolving door of artists it's why so many image series are so memorable because it's one fucking team working on the book and it's the same visual aesthetic the same visual themes throughout the story so you don't get this this disenjambment i don't know i'm I'm fucking heated. I, you're, I, you're not even making sense anymore. I know. Disenchantment. <laughs> well, you know, part of the problem is a lot of these books are bi uh, biweekly now, so yeah, it's forcing. That's exactly what I was gonna say. Ryan Otley, yep. uh, I think on Twitter a couple months ago, said there's no way he could do more than six or eight issues a year without losing his mind. Um, so like physically, these artists can't keep up with the, the Marvel schedule. And I told, and I get that. And, and like I said, that's 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 fine. If you're gonna switch artists for that reason, I I understand that. But at least pick a new artist who is similar in style. Don't mm. don't get someone who's got a completely different style because it gives the book an an utterly different feeling. There is a way around it. Um, I've seen a lot of. Uh, some books they'll split the artists, so there'll be two artists on one book, but one artist will care will do all the flashbacks, so it makes logical sense that it would change yes. visually. And I'm and that I actually do enjoy that because that helps supplement the story more, and it gives it's it, it helps the reader recognize like oh we're in a flashback, it looks different. Yeah, that it makes, makes a connection to, to the narrative. Yeah, our preview our preview for the uncanny uh, X Men: The Birth of Cyclops, the return of the birth of Cyclops, the return of Cyclops, uh, up on aptcomics.com right now has that same thing going on. It was especially jarring for me recently in reading the complete collection of Avengers Arena, written by Dennis Hopeless. Um, I cannot, for the life of me, remember any of the artists right now, unfortunately. But there's one main artist for a lot of that book, and then there's a couple that are done by a different artist. And the main artist does a really good job of drawing all those characters. Um, X-23 is in her original costume, so like a little bit sexualized, but does a really good job of making it very action-oriented, very um, fast-moving very well paced very um, violent very well done in general and then the interstitial stories which are again kind of individual character focused like you were saying work sometimes Dave they like really leaned into like the sexual sexualization of some of the characters and I was like whoa no <laughs> yeah like you can't just start doing that and it feels so weird and it feels so tonally different for the narrative and then you just just think about like the the story arcs and the runs that we all remember so well in the past like 10 15 years it's the same team. You look at um, Batman New 52 is Scott Snyder and Greg Capullo throughout. Uncanny X-Force is Remender and Jerome Pena. Uh, Deadpool, Daniel Way and Ed McGinnis. Like these memorable runs are so memorable because it's one specific style. It's the, the, the narrative and the artistic presentation are married for so long that it's unforgettable. And when you have these rotating artists, it's, it, it completely disrupts your memory of it. Because you're trying to remember multiple styles at once. It's unfortunate because 
I think a lot of people don't give artists the credit they're due. And <laughs> when this happens, it's so obvious how imperative it is for an artist to stay on the book for an entire arc because they're they're telling the story as much as, if not more so, than the writer. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's equally as important. I interviewed Kurt Pyers about his new book, um, Weird, coming out uh, later this month, I think. And he said, we've asked that we be called co-storytellers. Right. And I think that that's a really good, interesting insight into the creative process. And to say that it's unevenly split, I think is disingenuous. So you need to give artists time to develop the art. Obviously, that takes a lot of time. And if Ryan Otley says that he can't do it, Marvel needs to respect that, I think. And burnout is a really, really important issue. I think, you know, they're talking on Twitter all day about gloves because their hands hurt and because their wrists hurt and stuff. That's not appropriate. We've been talking about Red Dead Redemption 2, the amount of work, the overages and hours and all sorts of stuff. And the video games industry is looking at this and the potential of unionization around that. Because of that, the burnout is very real and it's very bad and we're starting to call ourselves the burnout generation but at the same time the artistic integrity is so much higher when they're connected so i think giving them the leeway or the credence to do the things that they need to do to deliver the kinds of things that connor is talking about is so important very true something very worthy of being passionate about i would say wouldn't you say boys absolutely i believe i just did (laughs) Well, thank you for listening. This is the end of our show. Uh, if you like the show, please like it. Give us a nice review and a five-star rating if we you know, met that standard. Um, and also tell your friends, we are building this show and we're going to be doing this weekly, all 2018. Yeah, we got some, uh, we got some good stuff planned. Uh, we, uh, we're working on some stuff behind the scenes that we're, we're very excited about. So. Yep. And even though we're in the dead of winter, we are planning ahead for some of the biggest conventions of the year. So... Please come back and listen, and we hope you love the show. Also, I want to give a quick shout-out to the new comic book store, Now or Never Comics, in San Diego, California. Very excited to see new comic book stores popping up. And I want to give a shout-out to Wildstorm, one of my favorite series. Thanks! Yeah! 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 (laughs) Bye!